Good afternoon. It is so good to be gathered back together with each and every one of you. Be returning here to spend some time in God's Word, spend some time learning about His will and about Him. And, and especially tonight, uh, or this afternoon, excuse me, I'm excited to, to look at a, a section of Scripture that I think we oftentimes overlook, a section of scripture that oftentimes, maybe because of what it is referred to as, we deem as unnecessary or minor in, in, our, in our relationship with the Lord, but it certainly is not. I want to look at the book of Hosea this afternoon. If you want to go ahead and be turning your Bibles there, the book of Hosea, we'll spend a little bit of time studying uh, primarily the first three chapters of this book, and this will set us up for study, uh, studying Hosea in the future and the remaining chapters of this book, but I really want to look at, for this afternoon at these first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, in this time of Hosea, uh, we see this coming around the end of the, pro- of the period of the prophet Amos. Amos was known as the country prophet, as he was uh, sometimes called. He was prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel, and around that time, Hosea comes up on the scene. Hosea's name is a special name. It is derived from the same word that Joshua and Jesus is derived from. It means salvation. And But what we're going to see is while the audience was the same, they were both prophesying uh, to this northern kingdom of Israel. The audience was the same, but there were still subtle differences. Amos was from Judah. Uh, and so he was prophesying not necessarily to, to the home crowd. He was kind of an, uh, on an away game, if you will. But Hosea appears to have been from Israel. Amos shows very little patience with, their northern, with his northern relatives. He is, is uh, much more aggressive with them, while Hosea displays a large degree of sympathy and understanding towards his people. It's been noted by scholars that Amos is much more reminiscent to that of John the Baptist, while Hosea and his approach is so much more reminding of how Jesus approached people. In this first lesson, uh, which I hope will lead to several other lessons, I want to see why Hosea was so sympathetic. Even as he was condemning people for their sins, he did so with sympathy. And what I want to notice in all of this is that uh, that Hosea is a... Is, is an example and shows us the characteristic of God that we so oftentimes need to be reminded of, and that is His redeeming love of us. So let's get a little bit of background material about the book of Hosea, especially about the man of Hosea. Hosea was a man born from a, uh, to a father named Beery. We'll see this in the first verse. And we know nothing more about his ancestry. Many people think that he may have been part of the uh, of the lineage of the priests uh, because he views in such a high regard the responsibilities and the duties of the priests, but really not much more is known about Hosea other than that he comes from along the line of the father, Beery. He is told to take a wife. Her name is Gomer. And we, as we will le- read about her, it becomes to be a, uh, a relationship that is not a faithful relationship. And he has three children, one Jezreel, a son, a daughter, Lo Rahamah, and another son, Lo Ami. And this is 
This is his family. And it is through this family that a very basic message is going to be illustrated and taught to the, to the recipients of this message. The date for the book of Hosea is back in a time when Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah are all re- uh, ruling over the kings, uh, kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel, where most of this takes place, is being ruled by Jeroboam II. So that puts us in a time of around the year 750 B.C. to 725 B.C. Now it's very likely that Hosea was a young man. Because he was beginning his prophecy, his work, while Amos was almost finished with his ministry. And uh, the, the contemporaries that he would have been working with during this time in relation to his prophecy, uh, we would see it be Isaiah and Micah. While Amos and Hosea are prophesying in Israel, Isaiah and Micah are prophesying in Judea. And to the land that they're prophesying to, the land or the area that they're prophesying to, uh, we can read about it in 2 Kings 14-17 through 17 and 2 Chronicles 26 through 29. And as we read that, as you take some time to go back and study that time period of, for the period of Hosea, you'll find out that it is not a good time for the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is literally on its last legs. They are facing the, the, the soon-to-come captivity by the Assyrian Empire. Sin is running rampant. Uh, there is a, a huge deal of religious, moral, and political corruption Things are just really not good for the city of Israel. And one word can really describe the situation of the people. That is unfaithfulness. In fact, the word harlotry and whoredom is used 13 times in the book of of Hosea. And several times in just these first three verses. But one thing for us to remember as we go through this. One thing to help us understand this book. Is that this book is an analogy. This book is used to create an analogy between Hosea and Gomer, his, his wife would be unfaithful, and the Lord and his people. This analogy is described in chapters 1 through 3, and it serves as the backdrop for the remainder of the book. So this afternoon, I want to spend some time looking at these first three chapters and, and learning and, and realizing what all is being discussed about, uh, discussed in these chapters. Starting in chapter 1, let's read verses 1 uh, through 9. Hosea chapter 1, 1 through 9 says, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood shed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she, then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rahamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Haramah, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, 
for you are not my people and I am not your God. So we see some really strong words being spoken by God to the children of Israel. And one of the first things I want to notice is that Israel's rejection of God is being symbolized in these first verses. Hosea is commanded to marry a wife of harlotry. We see her name is Gomer. And now if this parallel between Gomer and the children of Israel is an exact parallel, an exact analogy, then it's then Gomer would not have been a harlot when they married, but would have at some time in the future begun a life of harlotry and unfaithfulness. But either way, we can see that because of uh, that because of or due to her background, she would soon become a, a harlotry or a harlot, and she would symbolize what Israel was becoming to the Lord. As we read on, it says that Gomer bears three children, the first of which is named Jezreel, a son. Jezreel literally means God scatters or God sows. And we'll read more about that name after a while. But his name prefigures the judgment that God is going to show on the ruling house of Israel. But then she gives birth to another child, a daughter named Lower Hamath, which means no mercy. Now notice the way it, is, it talks about, when it talks about the children being born in verses in verse 3, it says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then a little while later, when we see in verse 6, it says, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Many have said that this is to, to point to the fact that it's likely that Jezreel, uh, excuse me, Jezreel was the only son or the only child of Homer and, Gomer and Hosea. Whew, a lot of words that are mixing my tongue up here. Gomer and Hosea, that was actually Hosea's. The other two children were born in, in harlotry and were tr tr uh, children of harlotry. And it's very likely they weren't even Hosea's children at all. God says to call her Loharamah, which means no mercy. And he, he goes on to show his attitude that he will have towards Israel. And we'll see in just a, a, a short while, Israel is going to be shown no mercy when the Assyrians come in. And yet he proclaims that there will be mercy shown towards Judah because Judah still finds grace in the eyes of God. And we see the exact same the exact thing happening. They actually withstand, not because of their own doing, not because of their own might, but because of the, the power of God and because of his presence and, and his will, they withstand the attacks of the Assyrians and actually hold them off until eventually the Babylonians come in and and they make the same mistakes that Israel does, and the Babylonians take them captive. But God here is pronouncing judgment still, saying that He will scatter His people. He will have no mercy on His people. And then we come to a second, uh, the second son, Lo-Ami. His name literally means, not my people. God declares, because of the rejection of Israel, and rejecting Him as their king and their God, He declares His rejection of the nation of Israel. These first nine verses symbolize Israel's rejection. As we read on, we will see that the restoration is told of in the next few verses. In uh, chapters, or chapter 1, verse 10, the first verse of chapter 2, it says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. 
And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to you, the brothers, Ami, and to your sister, Ruhamah. Though they were cast off, and though they had rejected God and God was rejecting them, God promises them a restoration. Now certainly this might refer and, and is partially uh, fulfilled in being restored from Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. But Peter and Paul both attributed this to a promise given to those uh, of the first century. Look in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Actually, starting in verse 20, 23, Peter saying, And he did so, make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her, and her who was not beloved, Beloved, and it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people, therefore they shall be called sons of the living God. Peter, likewise, over in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, as he's talking about this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, in, in verse 9, says in verse 10, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Both Peter and, and Paul attribute the fulfillment of this restoration to the church and to the Jews and the Gentiles being pulled together in unity underneath this new kingdom of Christ's. So we see this call uh, or the symbolized rejection. We see a restoration that was to unfold. In the next verses, we're going to see that Israel continues in unfaithfulness. Verses uh, 2 through 13 says, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked, and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, <coughs> and slay her with thirst. Also I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her, her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. <clears throat> for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her festivals, all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers has given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, 
when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgets me, declares the Lord. A condemnation is being described here for sin. There was charges of harlotry, of adultery. No mercy would be given to her or to her children. We see God's rage being played out here over Israel's unfaithfulness. And it's described in terms of a, a husband who learns that his, his spouse, his wife, has not only committed adultery, that the children are not even his. We see great deals of, of anger coming from this. And as Hosea goes on to, to describe what the Lord is saying, he says that punishment is coming for the sinful conduct. Israel is going to not find her lovers. Those things that she was idolizing so well. It's going to take away the blessings and the feasts that Israel enjoyed. It's going to destroy what Israel used to commit spiritual harlotry. Israel's sin, their foremost sin, was idolatry. This was reference to their worship of Baal. God viewed this idolatry as a form of unfaithfulness, of, of, of harlotry against him. And he goes on to say that this restoration that I have promised will come. And he goes on to describe it in verses 14 through 23. Saying, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, in the valley of Achor, as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Bailey. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to, to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And Hosea's description of the restoration starts off with this very powerful statement. A statement that would not expect to be made by one whose, whose spouse had committed adultery and been unfaithful to them. He says, I will win her back. This is the show, goes to show the great lengths that God is willing to go for mankind. He says, behold, in verse 14, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. God not only says that he will win her back, he also says that he will cure her. He will heal her from the, from the, the language that they, that they were using in this worship of Baal, and this worship of idols. He goes on to say, I will establish a covenant with her, a covenant of peace and of safety, and betroth Israel to him once again. 
Once again, they will be blessed. Once again, they will, be, uh, they will receive mercy. And again, all this can reference things that did happen in the restoration of the, of the people from, from captivity. But more so than that, it foreshadows the age of the Messiah. If we remember, all the things that are talking about here are, be, are very spiritual things. Even though they are being described in physical ways, they were, they were guilty of spiritual adultery. And so the restoration was going to be so much more than, than a physical restoration. It was a spiritual restoration of the people. And again, we can look back to Peter and Paul and their writings that we just read in Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2 that agree with these same statements and show us the, the completion of these statements in the church. And then Hosea goes on to describe or symbolize Israel's restoration in chapter 3. Saying, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself, for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. And afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Hosea is charged here in these, in these last verses of chapter 3. Hosea is charged to do something that seems so unthinkable. He is charged to go back and to love this adulterous woman. Most take this to be Gomer. To go back and love this woman who has given herself up to, har to harlotry. And Hosea does so. He takes her back. But he takes her back with a period of probation. Saying that there will be no other, no other men in your life but me. This symbolizes God's willingness to take Israel back. They had ran off and committed spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to God through idolatry, through worshiping after and chasing after other gods of other lands. And God said, I will take you back. But there is going to be a probationary period. And there was a period in which there was no king. There was no nation. They would continually be under the rule of someone else. But they were looking forward to the day when that restoration would be made complete. When they would seek the Lord and David their king. Of whose which line we see Jesus coming in. Under the lineage of David. In these first three chapters. As we think of, of God's, God's condemnation of, of Israel, and we think of God's willingness to take Israel back, we are learning through Hosea an object lesson. Hosea's experience with Gomer teaches us a lesson and provides us a concrete illustration as to God's relationship with His people, especially with Israel and what that relationship had been like. Israel was unfaithful. Israel had played the harlot, but God was willing to take her back. God was willing not just to take her back, but to love her following this period of punishment and probation. 
keeping that analogy in mind. That will assist us as we continue on through the remaining chapters of this book. But there are lessons to be learned from this analogy. Lessons to be learned especially about how God views apostasy. Turning away from Him. He views it as spiritual harlotry. Spiritual unfaithfulness. Because He views us as His betrothed. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, it says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that in Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We are betrothed to Christ as children of God, as members of the saved elect, as members of His church. But we can commit spiritual harlotry if we are not careful. If we do not remember, as verse 3 tells us, the simplicity and the purity of the devotion to Christ. A devotion that is like that of a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband. Are we being true to our betrothal? I hope that the words of the, of the Lord in Hosea will encourage us to remain forever faithful. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2 when he said, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Maybe today, maybe today you realize that the betrothal that God placed with you and with Christ being betrothed as a member of the bride of Christ, the church, is something that you've been unfaithful to. Maybe you have found that you have not been putting your husband first in that we have not been putting Christ first. Maybe as we have, as we have studied this and we have realized just how serious and how important God views faithfulness to Him, and we realize that we've been making a step, uh, taking steps back Instead of, instead of taking steps closer to draw us to Him. And maybe we've realized how serious and how angry that makes God. If we've really realized those things, we've come to realize the importance of not only being betrothed to Him, but being faithful to Him. I pray that we also realize the great amount of, of love that God shows in being willing to take us back. In being willing to restore that relationship relationship that was divided so long ago when sin entered into this world. That relationship is restored in Christ. If you have not yet become one who is betrothed to Christ, you do so by following after His words, by, by submitting to Him in obedience, just as Christ submitted to God in obedience. If you have done that, but you realize that you have still allowed something to stand in between this relationship, something to, to lure you away from where your focus and your gaze should be. We still have that hope of restoration through confession of sins and through prayer. Whatever we can do to help you this afternoon, I would encourage you, please let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.